From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and on today's show, I have a conversation with Nebraska's only astronaut, Clayton Anderson. Uh, I think it starts out being cool and pretty, and it changed my perspective because I'm a man of faith, and I believe in God, and I believe that none of it's random. I believe it's it's orderly, it's symmetrical, it's and, and there's a purpose behind it all. Anderson discusses his upbringing and his dedication to following his dream of joining NASA and going to space, I suspect as far away, perhaps, as anybody has ever made it out of Nebraska, as well as his ability to share his experiences in his books like The Ordinary Spaceman and his newest release, Letters from Space. Stick around for the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with somebody who has made it off the planet. And I think it was actually kind of appropriate to talk to somebody like that. Um, I, I talked to him in the midst of election fever. This was recorded almost a month ago. And I, I think uh, certainly a lot of people are feeling uh, the, the urge to, you know, if I could just get off the planet for a little bit, get away from some of the messaging, maybe maybe that'd be nice. Maybe it'd be a nice reprieve. And I think beyond that, there is something, uh, I don't know if it's American, I don't know if it's human, but certainly growing up after the space race, or during the space race, I think everybody's a little fascinated with space, with what is it? Like, what does it do to your brain to go there? What does it do to your brain to even look at it, right? And I I thought it was very fascinating to get a perspective from Nebraska's only astronaut, Clayton Anderson, who's not only gone to space, but he's done a lot of work to try to share his experiences as an astronaut with people who maybe want to go, want to learn, want to be inspired about the future that this country could take, that technology could take. And so Clayton Anderson, Nebraska's only astronaut, is on the show today. I talked to him uh, about his experiences, about his life, about his brain after having gone to space, what that did to him as a person, what it did to his family, and just how he sort of grappled with all of these things that I think all of us have a lot of trouble wrapping our minds around. He likes to call himself the Ordinary Spaceman. In fact, that's one of his most famous books, and I think it does a good job of describing him. He's not trying to blow your mind. He's trying to sort of share something that he feels we all can kind of get some understanding of. I don't know if that's true or not, but he's certainly out there trying to share that in his book, The Ordinary Spaceman, is available. He's written several others. His newest publication is called Letters from Space, which is available wherever you get books. Here is my conversation with astronaut Clayton Anderson. Okay, perfect. Well, so I guess first I want to start by saying that uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, Nebraskans, I speak from experience as a Nebraskan, it's difficult for us sometimes to leave the state. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people who want to get out who say, oh, one day I'm going to leave and they never really do. And I assume you might be the Nebraskan who's made it the furthest away from Nebraska of any (laughs) human ever. So congratulations on that. Uh, I only only went... 250 miles away, so 
you know, it's not that much farther. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, you're, one of your books uh, is calls you an ordinary person. And so, I mean, I, I guess I'm curious, how do we go from this idea of ordinary to being an astronaut and doing something extraordinary, like getting into space? Well, uh, I think that the premise is that anyone from Nebraska, let's say, is just like me, right? I'm a small town kid. Uh, I went to Ashland, 1,800 people in the town. Um, I'm, I'm a product of that town, of that school system, of that uh, church system, of that uh, peer group, whatever it is. And I was pretty ordinary, right? I mean, I wasn't the smartest kid in the room, maybe sometimes, but not always. Um, I wasn't the most gifted uh, but given the talents I was blessed with and the willingness of the Nebraska work ethic to work hard and to do my best anytime I tried to do anything uh, with a little luck and, and a little good timing, I found myself in outer space for 160 So how did you learn the Nebraska ethic? What was that like as a kid? Well, I think I learned it watching, right? I, I know my dad... Uh, worked at a job that he w didn't really like, but he worked there because he had health benefits and for a guy that had three uh, heart attacks before he was 35, <clears throat> he needed the health benefits to protect his family. Mother uh, raised three kids and then go back to school to get her master's degree in speech pathology at the University of Nebraska, where she would drop my brother and sister and I with grandma and grandpa uh, almost every day while she went into Lincoln and did a day's worth of school and homework and all the things that were required. I, I watched as my father <laughs> educated me on getting my first paper out job and opened my first bank account where um, I delivered papers seven days a week. And the only time I really got any help was on days when it was really bad weather-wise in the wintertime. Um, and I was expected to pull my weight. I was expected to uh, get a job and be employed uh, after high school and, and between in my college years. And uh, my dad would hire me out in high school to work for the local farmers. And that was indeed a, a lesson in hard work and worth work ethic. I mean, those people bust their hump um, and being a small town kid, but not a country kid, you know, I didn't, didn't know the farm, but I worked on the farm and I learned the farm and I learned those people are really, really resilient and um, uh, independent and they're pretty amazing. And they were really good role models for me, right? They didn't let anything phase them when a piece of equipment broke or, or when uh, an animal got loose or when, you know, the rain didn't come, they were still, always the same, right? Even keel and they just kept plodding along. So uh, I think that's where I got my work ethic from. Um, I would go to NASA and I would see some uh, amazing people there too, but I'd also see some that didn't have the work ethic that I was raised with. Were you obsessed with space as a kid? I, I don't know if obsessed was the word. I was more obsessed with Superman and Batman, I think, and uh, reading comic books in, in an apple tree across the street from my house. But um, space enamored me when I was nine. My mom awakened my brother and sister, mom and dad waking my brother and sister and I up on Christmas Eve in 68 to watch Apollo 8 go behind the moon for the first time. 
and that was my first recollection of being enamored with space. Uh, Mom would say that three years earlier when I was six that I would discuss it with her and we would chat about uh, me becoming an astronaut, but I don't recall that part. So um, if you consider I'm 61 years old today, 55 years ago, I guess I started the dream of going into space. So, I mean, was, was the dream there that long ago? I mean, you say it wasn't really conscious for you, but I mean, it was something where did you start to follow, you know, the space race, the moon landing a little bit more actively after that first encounter? Um, you know, as a young kid, probably not, you know, we knew my mom and dad knew obviously when something important was happening and they put us in front of the TV to witness it. Same thing with JFK being shot, Martin Luther King and all that stuff. Um, and Apollo when they walked on the moon for the first time, but did I follow it? Probably not a whole lot. I had, I had books that I would check out from the library about satellites and rockets and things. Um, but you know, there wasn't that much available to you back then. There was no, I mean, obviously no internet. Uh, as I got older and as I got to high school, I remember in government class, I had to do a presentation to the class and it was the subject of our choice. And my subject turned out to be NASA. But I remember having to do a lot of research to find out 10 questions that I was going to ask my classmates that A, I could understand and then B, hope that they would understand as part of my presentation, right, to educate them about topics of space. So I remember one of the questions, what's NASA stand for? National Aeronautics and Space Administration. How many kids back then in 1976 really knew that, right? I was too busy worrying about playing football and basketball and going to homecoming and prom and <laughs> and uh, working on the farms, right? And stuff like that. So uh, as I got older and got into college, then it became more... I, I really could do this maybe if I can figure out the inroads to connectivity to the people that can help me. That seems like that's tough. And I think that's one of the things that keeps people in Nebraska. If they have dreams that sort of would have to take them out of it, you know, it's like, how do you get there? You know, if you live in a certain city where whatever it is you're interested in, there's already a hub of it. It's easy to sort of see how you get there. But for you, I mean, so I assume you had to study physics and other related things in order to sort of have the skill set that would be necessary. But I mean, were you thinking even as you got into college, okay, I need to sort of take these steps or find, uh, you know, the avenue you're going to take? Well, as a high school kid, you know, there wasn't much choice, right? You knew, I knew I was going to do college prep because I was going to go to college. Uh, and, but I was going to go to college because I wanted to play college football. <laughs> it wasn't because I wanted to get a degree. Right. And then when I got to college, uh, my first semester as a freshman, I took some coaching courses and cause I thought I'd be a coach and a, and a teacher educator. Uh, I found out pretty, pretty quickly into that. I really didn't like it. Uh, I did love science. Uh, there was a professor at Hastings college named Clyde Sackleman that, uh, influenced me greatly in terms of um, coaching me and convincing me to come over into that side of the, of the education uh, world. And I enjoyed it. I don't know how good I was at it, but I enjoyed it. But I did learn that I didn't want to be that guy in a white lab coat all day long, looking at electronic devices, telling me how many, you know, 
particle uh, nuclear particles were flying by some thing in a day. So, <laughs> um, but I did figure out that I was going to go get an advanced degree. I wanted to study aerospace engineering at that time. And that's what I did at Iowa state. Uh, and that was really the first time I actually dove into uh, that life of space at NASA. And I was fortunate enough to get selected as an intern down there where I actually lived it. I worked it. I did it. And that's kind of when the bells and whistles went off and said, yeah, maybe this is what it is. So what, what was your life like as an intern then? What were you doing? First summer, 1981, I was bored out of my brain. The, the people that they put me with were wonderful folks. And what they did was their division was called the Data System and Analysis Division. And they were the guys that were building the software to run what they called the shuttle mission simulator, which is if you think of a Boeing airplane pilot and they get in a simulator and they fly the airplane and it moves and it does all the things the plane does, imagine that for the space shuttle. These guys were putting in the models for the aerodynamics, for the systems, for the uh, landing process, for the weather, for the sun, what position is the sun going to be over the earth when you're flying to Florida on whatever day it was. I mean, it was pretty amazing stuff, but it was way beyond me. And the jobs that they gave me, they were not ready for an intern. You know, this was a new concept in NASA to bring summer hires from colleges and universities. So they were certain groups had done it and were getting better at it, but this group was new or or new to the process. And so they bring in this new intern and they go, gosh, what do we do with this kid? Well, give him this to do. He'll, it'll take him a while. And I'd go do it and give it back a couple of days later. And they go, you're finished already. Yeah. Wasn't that tough. Okay. We'll give you this. And then I'd take it back and they'd say, man, you're done again. Yeah. It's easy stuff. You're not giving me anything with any meat on it. Uh, so eventually, um, I learned that most of that summer was, was busy work. Uh, it was probably useful to them, but to me it was busy work. So the second year I applied again and got selected. So I said, Hey, I'd really like to work somewhere that works, that does this kind of stuff that I was studying at Iowa state. And my second summer, it was amazingly different and amazingly good because I actually did real work and I liked the real work. And those guys liked me and my work ethic and my abilities. And they offered to hire me right then. But I told them I was going to wait, finish my master's degree. And fortunately for me, they still had a job waiting for me in 1983 when I graduated. So that's where I started. Were you worried that you'd miss out on the opportunity by returning to school? A little bit, but (laughs) I'm young and stupid, right? I, I knew one thing. I was done with school. I was, I wanted to get my master's degree and be done. I didn't want to do it anymore because Iowa State wanted me to do a PhD. And I said, no way. I've seen those guys doing PhDs. I ain't doing that. And I'm ready to go out into the world. I'm ready to make some money. I'm ready to take vacations. I'm ready to play rec basketball and softball and uh, do all the things that a young person is supposed to do once they're out of school. Um, So, I would maybe was worried a little bit, but I figured, well, I'll get some more job offers. I'm just lucky I took the one at NASA because I only got one other job offer. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Clayton Anderson, Nebraska's only astronaut. 
He's written several books about his experiences, including The Ordinary Spaceman and his newest one, Letters from Space, which is available wherever you get books. Well, it sounds like you, you acclimated and got very skilled pretty quickly, right? I mean, so even though it was busy work to you, they were surprised that you were able to do it as easily as you were. So, I mean, was it just sort of that work ethic? Because, I mean, you kind of say, okay, you're ordinary, not the best student, but you must have improved pretty significantly to be at this point where uh, they want to give you a job even though you hadn't graduated, right? Well, I think that in anything, it's part of its personality. Do they like you? Do they like having you around? Do they want to, is there somebody that wants to work with you and mentor you and teach you what they're doing because they're not going to be around forever. And I had a really great <clears throat> set of people that did that. I mean, they're still friends today. Uh, one of them's the godfather of my two kids. So, and, and were they smart? Yeah, they were really smart. And what was, I was smart enough, right? I can be taught pretty much anything. If you, if you give me a chance at it, and you're good at explaining it, I'll pick it up pretty fast. And I think that was what I did. And the, and the concepts I had gotten at Iowa State, the basics, I came to NASA and those basics were reinforced, but then you kind of focused in on, let's take those basics, but here's how they're applied in the real world of space travel. And, and that's what was the most fun. Well, and so, I mean, when you got hired, was it clear that you were on the trajectory to actually get into space or was it just going to be kind of working within the, you know, the system no, somehow? No, not even close. <laughs> I, I started my application process in 83 when I was first eligible. And in honesty, I wasn't really officially eligible yet because I hadn't worked the, the requisite number of years post degree. But I applied anyway uh, with the philosophy of, I'm not going to tell myself no, I'll let them tell me no, which they're really good at, by the way, because they told me no for 14 straight years. But um, it, it, it was easy to apply. It's hard to get selected, but it's really easy to put in the paperwork that you need to put in. Um, once you do the initial digging to get, you know, the addresses you lived at for the last 10 years and your references and all that, once that's done, it's pretty much just submit and wait for rejection. And I got really good at that too. So, uh, so what'd you do for those 14 years then? Uh, I moved up the ladder in the world of engineering. I was a, a, what they called a trajectory designer. And then I became a supervisor. And after a supervisor, I moved up to the next level of management, which was called a branch chief. And then I moved up to the level they called division chief. And that's kind of where I was sitting when uh, someone finally looked at my astronaut application and said, we ought to interview this guy. And they interviewed me the first time and I still got rejected. <laughs> so it took another couple of years to get that second interview after which I was chosen in the, in 1998 to be a member of the group 17 astronaut class. Well, so, I mean, what was it that needed to happen? I mean, I assume part of it's just you need more life experience. You probably gained other skills. But, I mean, even after you'd gotten pretty far and then we're still getting rejected, what, where did you need to be? What were they looking for? I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. I think um, part of it, again, is do they like you? Do they think you have what it takes? Uh, yeah, they're going to look at your resume and they're going to see, okay, he did this, he did this, he did this. But, you know, I, I'm going to guess my resume wasn't nearly as spectacular as some of the people that were selected with me, before me, after me. Um, but I do think that my 
progression up the ladder at the Johnson Space Center in Houston and the number of people at high level management that knew me and respected me and, and liked the way I worked with people and worked with projects, that, that helped me. Um, and then you do get that interview and you kind of get to tell them everything else. Well, when a guy walks in and said, hey, I referee high school and college basketball. Did you know I refereed for the Houston Rockets after they won the championship in 1994? And I was their fake referee during their preseason the next year. Yada, and they go, really? And then they want to talk about that. Well, they don't care about the rest of it. They think I was refereeing for Akeem Olajuwon and, and uh, Vernon Maxwell and Kenny Smith and those guys. And that's okay. If it helps me get in, I'm good. I mean, there must have been difficult points, though, where you had trouble persisting or just deciding that you're going to do it. I mean, it sounds like for you, almost at a certain point, it becomes just tradition, but it still has got to be tough, right? To just know that there's a likelihood of getting rejected year after year after year. I mean, how did well, how, you stay motivated? I liked what I was doing. Even if I didn't get picked to be an astronaut, I really liked where I was. Uh, I had a beautiful wife. I had a young family. You know, all that was good. My life was good. If I got chosen to be an astronaut, that would make it great. But if I didn't, I was, we were doing okay. Um, I don't know, you know, we did almost quit in the year 13. Um, before I got called for the interview, my wife and I decided to fly up to Seattle and see a fellow in Nebraska named Jeff Rakes, who worked for Microsoft. And the idea for us was we'd go up and see them. We hadn't seen them in forever. And, uh, but then I would also talk to him and think about Boeing and, and other space companies where I might uh, want to work thinking, okay, the astronaut thing's not going to work out ever. Well, it turned out after that trip, we came home and I'd say it was within a week. I got a phone call that said, Hey, we want to interview you. Uh, at, for astronaut position, are you open week X? I go, yeah, I'll make myself open week X. <laughs> and that was year 13, but I still didn't get selected. But now my foot was in the door and I didn't care about Seattle or Boeing anymore. I only care, cared about, okay, if my foot's in the door and they want to interview me, then I'm going to do my best and then we'll see what happens after that. I'll try for a while longer. And of course, two years later, I was lucky enough to get picked. Well, what is it about space that's so exciting or so, I mean, what draws you to it to get out there so much? Because, I mean, I get that it, there's that sublime element, but also it seems terrifying in a lot of ways. <laughs> ah, yeah, you could do it. It's easy. Um, <laughs> you know, I think what I remember is that as a young kid in Apollo 8 going behind the moon for the first time that I was kind of, wow, I really want to do that. I think that is the coolest thing. Was it reality? No. Was it going to be difficult? Oh, absolutely. But when I found myself being interviewed, for example, I'm thinking, I'm a shot at this. Uh, and then when I got the call that said, we've picked you, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And as my wife likes to say, our lives changed. In that moment, our lives changed. Um, and from that point on, it was, it was Susan, my wife and I, and the kids, uh, you know, helping to hold dad up when he was tired and cranky and crabby. And, uh, for a long time, they did that for me to help me live this dream. And, 
to be there, to get there, it's pretty amazing. It's nothing that I, as a young kid, thought it would be, right? I had, I only knew what was on TV and what came out of Walter Cronkite's mouth. I, I just thought it was cool, though. But the closer I got to it, the more I learned what it really was. And it's, it's not easy. It's not this brain thing that everybody thinks it is. It's not that I have to be so smart. It's that just that there's lots of stuff coming at me all the time from different directions and different subject matter. And you have to try to grab it and suck it in as much and keep as much in there as you can. And that's the hard part for me. And then somebody said, Clay, you need to speak Russian too. <laughs> I mean, that damn near killed me trying to learn Russian. But you're fluent now? Oh, I'm not fluent in anything. I'm, I'm barely fluent in English, but you know, I can get into Russia today. It'd be, it'd be a tough chore, but back then I was pretty good. Well, so, okay. When you actually got in, you got the job. What, what's the experience after that? The experience is you don't own your life anymore. Uh, you're on a schedule every week. You know, we would get handed our schedule for the next week. Uh, and it could include scuba diving. It could include a flight in the T-38. It could include six meetings. It could include uh, a couple classroom lectures. It could include physical training. Well, actually, it did. You had physical training every week. Uh, it, it included Russian language training. I mean, every day was of my life was pretty much planned out for the next 15 years. I was an astronaut. You know, and and especially when you're assigned. Uh, when you're a baby astronaut, you're plan, 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 and then you get a little bit of a break, but then they assign you to a flight and you're back in that, your your week is planned, all your weeks are planned, and uh, your holiday schedule is given to you. Hey, you can take vacation here, but we need you back on this day because you got to start doing whatever. So it it's a daunting task. I loved it. Uh, my family, maybe not so much. Uh, you know, it would find me in Russia at, at times when I would have rather been at home, you know, when your little son is playing little league football for the first time, he's in the sixth grade and I didn't see one of his games, not one. Or when his little league team made the playoffs and he hit a home run in Galveston, Texas, and I didn't get to see that either, you know, and you can't ever get that back. And, you know, same thing with my daughter, as she grew and, and did her things and was in her gymnastics and her cheerleading and all that stuff, I missed a lot of things. Uh, and I regret that deeply. Uh, and I hope my kids will someday forgive me. Uh, but they sacrificed a lot along with their mom to let their dad. Uh, all right. Fly in space. Well, I, I appreciate the, you know, the openness here and talking about this because I mean, it's something where I imagine it's a sort of, you know, what you're talking about. I mean, this passion is so specialized. It's so unique. I mean, not that many people get to do this. So, I mean, you're a part of such a small community of people who were able to do this. So, I mean, I assume that it's got to just be such a whirlwind of emotions of just that it's got to mean so much to be able to be one of the people who got to where you got to, uh, to have the experience that you've had. Uh, and I mean, surely, I mean, I, I don't want to dwell too much on, you know, touchy subjects, but I mean, I assume your family and just everybody around you has got to be proud of the fact that you are somebody who's so unique 
And, you know, I know you want to emphasize this idea of ordinary, but very few people actually have the perseverance to get to where you got to. And I mean, there's got to be a lot of pride with that too, right? Oh, I'm sure. I know, you know, my dad, he died when he was 54, way back in 1984. So he had no, no idea what happened. Uh, my mom, she passed away less than three weeks after I landed, after my first five-month trip to space. But I know she was proud. I, and, and I know my uncle, Jim, who's still in Ashland, Nebraska, is proud. And I know my wife and my kids are proud, although it's probably harder for my kids to admit it, you know, because <laughs> I'm just their old man. Uh, but uh, I hope the entire state of Nebraska is proud. I hope that every kid who reads about me in school is proud. I hope that every teacher that teaches about me in school is proud. I hope that every uh, political public servant or appointee is proud that, I mean, you know, when I went to uh, DC after my second trip to space, STS-131 back in 2010, uh, one of the biggest things that brought pride to me was the fact that every single Nebraska congressman and senator, all of them, they all knew me. None of my crewmates were known by their representatives or their senators but mine every one of them in nebraska knew me and they came up to me they would come out of their clay and they how you doing and that freaked my crewmates out because we'd go to their offices and you know the, the person would say and uh, tell me about yourself you know well you know blah blah but they all knew who clay anderson was and, and that was a huge source of pride for me uh you know from Fortenberry and Smith and, and uh, uh, now I'll forget their names, but uh, the former governor, Joe Hans, um, you know, Ben Nelson, all of them, they all knew who I was. And, and that was one of the coolest, most humbling experiences I've ever had to be on Capitol Hill and be known by the people <laughs> that Nebraskans elected to office. I'm talking today with Clayton Anderson, Nebraska's only astronaut, the one guy who made it so far out of Nebraska, he made it off the planet. Anderson has several books about his experiences, including The Ordinary Spaceman and his newest one, Letters from Space, which is geared toward a younger audience. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with astronaut Clayton Anderson, the guy who made it so far out of Nebraska he left the planet. He has several books about his experiences, including The Ordinary Spaceman, and recently some books geared toward younger readers like Letters from Space. All of them are available wherever you get your books. Here is the rest of our conversation. I imagine speaking of humbling experiences, just the first time you actually went to space, that must be humbling in its own way, right? What was what was that like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the first time is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to describe, but it's a thrill. The you don't ever. I, people ask me this all the time. I say they train the fear out of you. So I wasn't sitting there being scared. I was sitting there going, "Man, I hope I don't make a mistake. I got to do this, then I got to do this, and then in ten minutes I got to do that, and then I got to do this, and I can't screw it up because I don't want to be the guy that messes it up for the next one." And, uh, but they train all that out of you, and once you relax, once I was able to get there and relax a little bit, 
uh, it was amazing. It, it, it's, it is a once in a lifetime experience. And, uh, you know, I didn't throw up at all, which a lot of my crewmates were puking and they looked miserable, but I got to take medication. I said, Hey, the government's paying a lot of money to put my butt in space. I better be ready to go to work. So if I can take medication so I don't throw up so I can help those that do get sick. And that was a good thing. I didn't throw up from the day I launched. It took 152 days for me to yak chunks. But when I got home on hundred day, 152, yeah, I was, yeah. Well, so somebody, I forget who, but somebody had said that every astronaut is a poet when they talk about space. And I think that's largely just because it's such a small group of people who can describe it. You know, most of our human experiences, there's an easier sort of comparison in the way the language we choose for it. So, I mean, like if you try to just describe the experience, do you find, do you find yourself uh, waxing poetic or what's, what's your way of going about it? I think I take pride in the fact that I can bring it, if you'll let me say, down to earth, that I can talk to people at all levels and I can communicate what I felt like without being, you know, out in the weeds with detail and acronyms and, and all the crazy stuff that only an astronaut would know. I remember my mom bought a book uh, written by a fellow astronaut one time and I, I read it and I thought, geez, I'm glad I'm an astronaut because if I wasn't, I wouldn't understand any of it. And so that's how I try to bring it back to people. And I, I write a lot. You can see behind me the books I've written. And um, my style of writing is I want, I'm the ordinary spaceman. I want everyone to be able to relate and understand what I went through, what I did, uh, the goods, the bads, the uglies. So that because I'm real, I want to be real for people. Well, so, I mean, the actual experience of seeing earth or just seeing whatever's going on out there i mean how, how did you what did that do to your brain i mean did it, did it make you think about things differently or was it just you know cool and pretty where where did where did it leave you uh, i think it starts out being cool and pretty and uh for me you, you'll hear a lot of the astronauts speak of the uh, orbital perspective and the overview effect and how the fact that them being 250 miles above the earth looking down changes their perspective. And I totally get that. I don't disagree one iota, but it changed my perspective because I'm a man of faith and I believe in God. And I believe that none of it's random. I believe it's, it's orderly, it's symmetrical. It's, and, and there's a purpose behind it all. So I think way back when that big bang happened, there was something behind that big bang. And I believe it was God that was behind it. Now, I'm sure there are people that will disagree, but that's my orbital perspective. That's my overview effect. Um, and in addition to that, God's given us this gift that we call the spaceship Earth. So we should take care of it. Yeah, because it's the only one we have <laughs> in our solar system, in our galaxy, and probably, or well, to our knowledge, in the universe. It's the, We're all there is. So we should be smarter. We should take care of it. I think we will. I think we are. Uh, I think we argue a lot about stuff that most of us, if we back off a little bit, we could all agree that, yeah, we should take care of our spaceship. We should do its regular maintenance. We should not, uh, you know, pour acid on its metal hull that makes it rust, which is a stupid analogy. But, you know, you know what I mean? If 
if every person on the planet took care of their little space on their spaceship, we'd all be better off. So when you talk about um, your religious views sort of coming up when you were looking at space, when you were in that experience, I mean, so like, was it a moment where you felt close to God? You felt close to some kind of spiritual experience or was it just sort of an appreciation uh, and perspective you were able to bring? Well, I think it's a combination. It's really hard to describe to you those days that I had a few spare moments and I would go float in front of, uh, back then we had only very few windows that didn't look at the earth. There were only a couple small ones that looked out the side where you could kind of get a perspective of the planet and you could see the sunrise or set. And one of my favorite things to do was be there for a sunrise and wait for the sun to come up and feel that warmth come through the glass and hit my face. And to watch that and be able to observe that in, in quiet, only the fans and the pumps making you know white noise, it's a pretty surreal moment. It's a and it's it's a time it was a time for me that sometimes I prayed, right? And said, Thank you for putting me in this position at this time. Um, because I, I believe I was born to do that. Um, and, you know, was I closer to God? I sure hope so. Um, I was 250 miles closer. <laughs> but, and, and I think what the intent for me is, is for me to come back home and share with people and believe that if every human on the planet has a chance to go into space for a few days, and then couple that with a visit to a third world country, you talk about perspectives changing, then they would change. Um, what kind which, of change would, would you be advocating for in that sense? Well, that's a tough one because I also believe there's a lot of hate in the world and there's a lot of, uh, you know, people sometimes I believe dream of the United Federation of Planets and Captain Kirk and Spock and, and Worf and Picard, you know, all these alien species working together and playing and loving as one. I want that too, but I'm afraid that there's so much hate in the world and jealousy and, and coveting of, hey, they have this, and we don't. Why don't we have that? We got to take it from them. As long as you have that, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a tough road. But I think in America, most people want to help others. And we just have to do it in a way that's smart and works. Um, you can't just hand it to people. They need to have a dog in the hunt. Um, you know, I think I, with my kids, you know, my kids were pretty spoiled. We, we had a pretty good life. And as a kid, I remember... Um, we didn't ever want for food or clothing. Uh, my parents did whatever they could to uh, get us a baseball glove or baseball shoes or football cleats or whatever it was. But it wasn't always easy, right? There were some arguments in the house about money and finance and how we're going to pay for this and how we're going to pay for that. Um, and I think that as a kid, uh, I learned the lesson pretty early that I have to have a dog dog in the hunt. You know, if you just give it to me, I don't think about it the same as when I have to work for it. 
And when my father made me, he pretty much made me have that paper route when I was little. But then I understood when I get this money, I'm working for it. It's my money that I've earned and I can spend it on what I want to spend it on. Uh, and those were valuable lessons for me, such that now um, I'm in a point in my life where I can give more to my church. I can give more to charity. I can give more to my kids if I want or causes that I think are important. Um, and so just handing out stuff, I don't think is, is the good way. I think, I think I'll probably, I'm just probably getting myself in trouble here, but, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think that's why I like Habitat for Humanity so much because the people that build those houses, they have a dog in the hunt. And if we just erect low income housing somewhere and put people in it and they don't have a dog in that hunt. They don't take care of it as well as they might if they were a Habitat for Humanity homeowner, for example. Am, am I right in 100% of cases? No, of course not. But I think, I think most people, if they can look honestly at what's going on, if they have it, if someone has a dog in the hunt, it's better uh, than if they don't. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with astronaut Clayton Anderson, whose new book, Letters from Space, is available wherever you get your books. Well, in the, the space race, or just going to space in general, has been such a popular metaphor for like progress. And I think we like to see this idea of it sort of opens up this concept of we can achieve so many of our dreams because just look at space, you know, the, the way that we made it into space feels like the science fiction concept that turned into a reality. So it's almost like people put a lot of hope into the concept of, you know, space as sort of whether it's exploration, whether it's just the promise of new technology, whatever it might be. So, I mean, where do you see the future of space going uh, in general at this point? Well, first of all, I think I don't think the journey matters as much as what we learn along the way. You know, today there's we're, we're planning on going to the moon in 2024. We were planning on grabbing, going back and grabbing an asteroid, and everybody really wants to go to Mars. Those destinations are important, but they're not the end all. Because I think no matter where you tell NASA that we want to go here or here or here or here, the technology that's developed along the way is what comes back and allows you and I to zoom each other from Nebraska to to Texas or allows me to take a photo on my phone and shoot it to somebody over in Russia in seconds and to watch satellite TV from around the world at any given time these days. So that's a premise people need to keep in mind. I don't think it's the destination. It's what the technology we develop and what we learn along the way. Then after that, I have a phrase I call the three D's of spaceflight, difficulty, danger, and dollars. Spaceflight is hard. It's dangerous as Columbian Challenger and Apollo 1 proved, and it's really expensive. But what most people don't know is that the Apollo program paid back roughly $7 to $1 invested. So if you can get a seven to one uh, return on investment today, you're pretty happy. And that's the kind of thing that NASA's not real good about communicating, right? If you're sending astronauts back to the moon, instead of sending them to Mars, well, what's the benefit to the taxpayers who are funding it? And um, as an astronaut, I always argued with the scientists who wanted me to do their experiments in space. And I said, hey, give me three sentences 
that I can use in space to tell everybody why this is a good taxpayer investment. And you'd be surprised how few of them were able to come up with stuff uh, off the top of their head. And some of them it took days or weeks to come up with. And to me, that's very important. You have to think about that sort of thing because you have to sell your ideas back to the public. Uh, otherwise, they don't, they go away. And again, it's dog in the hunt, right? For every kid that's on his iPhone or his laptop or his uh, MacBook, where do those come from? Oh, Best Buy. <laughs> no, you know, they come from technology that's been developed over the years that come from fossil fuels and, and circuit, uh, computer circuits that we did because we learned about uh, uh, all sorts of electronic things through what we developed to go to the moon and then to the space station, and, you know. So it all comes back together if we communicate it appropriately to everybody so they know that they have a dog in the hunt. And so what what is the general argument then for continued space exploration like in your mind what do we what do we gain from that just in brief I think it's important to go uh, because of the technology that's needed to get us there um, and we'll go to the moon and people want to go to Mars to, to live and work because it's the it's the Disney World destination but I think we need to go back to the moon which is like six flags of Kansas City because it's not as far, communication gaps less. We can get back from the moon faster and, and if we have an issue, right? So let's go there. Let's play around. Let's live off the land. Let's learn how to convert the polar ice caps to drinking water or to, you know, grow and grow corn and tomatoes and soybeans there and build habitats that we can safely live in and work in that crazy, difficult environment. Now, when we've developed that, now we're ready to go off to Mars, which is a long ways away, six to nine months just to get there. Uh, if you have an issue on the way, what are we gonna do? It's gonna be a different ball game. Now, are we just going to go? No, we're going to explore, to learn, to chase life somewhere else. But again, the technology we developed to get us there is going to come back here and help us on earth. Maybe it's going to give us better solar panels, better wind power generators, better fossil fuel efficiency, uh, maybe better use of natural gas, better medical, better computers, better whatever. And, and that's, what's important. We're really spaceflight is an investment and the tax dollars that go into it are used more efficiently. I hope than most tax dollars are sometimes but I want people to understand that it's an investment uh, to go into space because of the things that come back uh, and benefit folks on earth and life on earth. So you've done a lot to try to spread the word of your experiences and your takeaways from being an astronaut and you've written several books. So what are, what are some of the books you've read and where can people find them? Or what's well, the books you've written rather? <laughs> My memoir is The Ordinary Spaceman, uh, From Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut, and that's a great place to start. It talks about my 15 years as an astronaut. Uh, it tells some wonderful stories. Uh, the book is not written to educate you or to tell you how to be a better leader or a better teammate, but there are enough anecdotal stories in there that you might be able to take your own learning points from those stories and apply them to your life. Uh, it's a question of space is another good book for young adults and teens and adults 
that's basically question and answers. What's it like to poop in space? What's it like to live in space for a long time? Is the food good? How's the toilet work? All that kind of stuff. So that's in a, a nice format where you can read a couple questions, put it away for a while, pick it up, read some more. Great for teachers on those Friday afternoons, you know, when everybody's crazy bored and they don't want to do studies anymore. So the teacher whips out that book and say, let's read a couple space questions. And then of course, uh, two children's books, A is for Astronaut uh, and Letters of Space, which just came out. Uh, those are both great starts for young kids. Um, gives them a good look into space, into being an astronaut, and they're fun. They're, the illustrations are really, really fun. I would recommend them to kids and adults everywhere. And so the, the newest one that just came out, that's it's geared toward young adult readers? Yeah, it's for uh, first to third grade, I think. And they say, what, five to eight? But it's stories or letters that uh, I've written to people back on Earth after they sent me like an email. So one of them is to mission control and it talks about, hey, I'm on my fifth day on this pair of underwear and you told me I'm supposed to wear them for four days and throw them away, but they're pretty clean, I think. And should I wear them for longer? Cause we're trying to preserve our supplies, that kind of thing. But I write letters to my mom, to one of my junior high teachers, to my neighbors, to my brother, to my son, to my daughter, to mission control. Uh, it's pretty cool. I think they're both really cool. I think they're all really cool. <laughs> so is part of the idea in gearing it toward younger readers that you want to be able to inspire young people to sort of go on the trajectory you went on, which is when you were young, you know, exposure to people, astronauts led you eventually onto this journey. I mean, are you able to do that for young people today then? I sure hope so. Um, these books, the children's books are designed to be fun and to, to again, the Nebraska, Nebraska not the ordinary spaceman, if only kids in Nebraska read my books, if no one in the United States except kids in Nebraska read my books, that's okay with me, sort of, because those kids that read those books, I want them to look at me and say, well, I'm from Nebraska too. Why can't I do this? And they may not be astronauts, but what if they're thinking about being a, a surgeon, a brain surgeon, or a a fighter pilot or a submarine driver or a race car driver. I mean, yeah, astronauts cool, but so are those other things. And so maybe this book will inspire them by showing them that, Hey, this kid from Ashland, Nebraska worked hard, had a little luck and some good timing and got to do his dream. So what's your dream kid? Now go do it. I think that's a great note for us to end on. So Clayton, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this interview. You bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. Clayton Anderson's books are available wherever you get your books. Some of them include The Ordinary Spaceman and his newest one, Letters from Space, which is geared toward a younger audience. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review. I'm Tom Noblock, and as always, thank you for listening.